This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org. Navigating Parkinson's disease can be challenging, but we're here to help. Welcome to the Michael J. Fox Foundation podcast. Tune in as we discuss what you should know today about Parkinson's research, living well with the disease, and the Foundation's mission to speed a cure. Free resources like this podcast are always available at michaeljfox.org. Hi, and thank you for tuning in to our Parkinson Science POV podcast. I'm Maggie Cool, Vice President of Research Engagement at the Michael J. Fox Foundation, and I'm here with my friends and our chief scientific officers, Dr. Mark Frazier and Dr. Brian Fisk. Nice to be back on the mic with you. Hey, Maggie. How's it going? Good. Nice to see you again. Yeah, and it's been a while. Summer 2022 is the last time that we recorded, and we've been busy since then. I should have said thank you for listening to the award-winning Parkinson Science POV podcast because we won the silver and the listener's choice, which I think we should take real big pride in, um, from the Signal Awards in the Science and Education Podcast Limited Series category. So um, yeah, thank you all for your listener support. And thank you, Mark and Brian, for producing such a award-winning cast here with me. It's all credit to you and your great question asking. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not I'm not going to be asking the questions on this one actually because we we went to the people for this episode. So science uh begets a lot of questions, right? So this is a special ask us anything episode of Parkinson Science POV where we gathered questions from social media and from our in-person events and our online events and called down to try and capture some categories or things that really rose to the top that a lot of people were asking about. Um, and a lot of questions came in around something that we talked about around this time last year. So in 2022, April, we talked, uh, Mark, about this biomarker that was sort of on the horizon. And I have a little transcript here of you talking about this thing called a seeding assay. And it's really exciting to see some of the data coming out of it. So that was last year. Flash forward to uh, April, May 2023, and a big paper came out, huge announcement around a biomarker breakthrough. So what's the last year been like for you in that sense? Oh, it's, re it's really been exciting, Maggie. Um, it's not often that as a scientist, you get to see new data every week that is positive and looks good. You know, oftentimes there's frustration and the world of science is a lot of disappointing experiments. But um, the last year and especially in the last six months, it's been really exciting because there have been results from the seeding assay pretty much on a weekly basis as PBMI samples are sent to um, be tested on the seeding assay and results are returned um, pretty much every week. You know, one of our um, investigators said it was like a new Netflix series being dropped every week and the data were emerging and they were just looking more and more exciting. And the results really confirm what we suspected last year and then some, which is um, the seeding assay has really high diagnostic accuracy for um, being positive in people with Parkinson's disease. It's an objective measure that is consistent with the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. 
But then, it, interestingly, it also seems to detect um, this synuclein seeding um, in people at risk for developing Parkinson's disease. So it suggests that one might be able to identify people before the symptoms of Parkinson's disease emerge, the movement, the tremor, and ultimately potentially intervene with therapeutics at an earlier stage. So it's it's just been an exciting time. The publication came out recently, and there's been a lot of positive feedback from the the research and the um, the patient community. That's right. So if you would like to learn more about that biomarker breakthrough, there are blog posts and webinars and other podcasts all accessible on our website, michaeljfox.org. But some people have been following the news and had some questions. So Mark, I'm going to kick off our Ask Us Anything with some of the questions that we got around this alpha-synuclein seeding amplification assay, which is the first comparing it to a similar finding or potentially you tell us, in another brain disease called Huntington's. So the question was received over social from at Murphy's Law 1987. So thank you for your question. We've known about the Huntington's disease gene mutation slash biomarker since 1993, but this discovery has yet to lead to an effective intervention against the disease. Do we know if things will be different with this biomarker for Parkinson's? How would you answer that, Mark? It's a great question, and I think it's a reminder to um, everyone, but especially scientists, that we have to be realistic in our expectations and how fast the research will develop. I think it's important to um, clarify the difference between a discovery of a gene or the identification of a gene and the identification of a biomarker. So in Parkinson's disease, the alpha-synuclein gene was identified in 1997, I think. And there's been a lot of progress since the identification of this gene and um, the evidence for the role of alpha-synuclein in Parkinson's has just increased over that time period. Um, but that's the gene, that's the change in DNA. Um, what we were um, talking about last year and, and just now is this marker, this objective marker that's different than DNA, it's actually right now in spinal fluid, it's a spinal fluid test that indicates whether someone might have this biology, this clumped synuclein associated with Parkinson's disease. So there is a difference between the identification of a gene and the identification of this objective marker. But be that as it may, the question still stands, what does this really mean? How fast will things progress in terms of new treatments for Parkinson's disease? And I think the really exciting part about this finding is that there's sort of two streams of science that were progressing in parallel and they're converging pretty much at the same time. That is, there were already treatments underway in, a, on, in clinical testing to test whether breaking up alpha-synuclein clumps in the brain or re reducing alpha-synuclein levels in the body could actually be useful and treat and slow or stop the progression of Parkinson's disease. So those treatments were already marching through clinical trials. There, you know, some of them are in mid-stage, mid some are moving to late-stage clinical trials. While in parallel, this other stream of science was developing with the objective biomarkers, the biomarker tests. And so this new seeding assay uh, discovery and uh, report 
is really a just-in-time test that can be used for these clinical trials that are testing new therapeutics targeting alpha-synuclein. And we're already seeing that impact um, at the moment where clinical trials are integrating the seeding assay um, into their trials as ways to identify people that are truly positive that have this alpha-synuclein changed that would then identify individuals that might respond to this treatment. So the exciting part is that there's really these trials and these new interventions that are developing alongside the biomarker that I think will really accelerate the progress. It's not as if we need to wait for new treatments to emerge at one now that this biomarker has been identified and, and reported on. I think this um, question about, you know, how long should it take from a basic discovery until you, you have treatments is a really, certainly a really important one and one that many, many people, uh, you know, ask. And it's, it's, you know, it says a lot too about where the initial discovery comes from. So when it's a gene that points to a biology we kind of understand and know, then that timeline might be very quick. But in many cases, that gene points to a biology that we don't know very well yet. And we then have to, it's sort of the first step, really, and you have to then really understand that biology better. And, uh, you know, we've seen that with, in Parkinson's, of course, with, you know, the original uh, mutation in the alpha-synuclein gene, which was, you're correct, Mark, it was 1997, uh, uh, where researchers first found that, discovered, uh, discovered that gene mutation. Uh, and then, but there have been other genes too, where the biology was, you know, equally more or less understood and, uh, and people have had to sort of use that information as their starting point. So I think it's, you know, we obviously would like to go faster, uh, but sometimes there's often a lot of um, initial steps you have to take around that uh, initial discovery before you can really figure out um, how to target it for it with a treatment or how to measure it with a biomarker. Well, we jumped right in, didn't we? That was a, a sort of <laughs> heavy, that was heavy a good starting question. That was a, a hard heavy one. kickoff. Yeah. Sorry for the long answer to the short question. Well, it was a lot in there. It was exactly. It was a longer question, and it just goes to show how informed and engaged our community is for sure. So another question we got on a webinar that we did around this topic was, can the test differentiate between Parkinson's and other diseases? There are other so-called synucleinopathies that have alpha-synuclein pathology as well, multiple system atrophy. There are other diseases that look like Parkinson's, like progressive supranuclear palsy, but might have other proteins at play. How can this test help us say this is PD versus something else. Right. It's a, a really important need to have this uh, differential diagnostic test. And the SAA right now seems to differentiate people with MSA, multiple systems atrophy, and Parkinson's disease. Although I would say that's very early in development because um, both MSA and Parkinson's disease are positive on the SAA, but if you look at the data in more detail, you can you seem to distinguish a different pattern in the people with MSA than Parkinson's disease. But um, researchers, and in particular the group that developed this test, um, this company called Amprion, are really working hard to make it more reliable to have this differential diagnosis 
Um, so currently, I think it's very much in the research setting, but I'm optimistic that the test will be able to identify differences between these Parkinson-isms, these Parkinson-like disorders and Parkinson's disease. Yeah. And my guess is the test will never be used in isolation by itself to do that. Yeah. You know, there are other signs and features that you could use in addition to the, the, uh, the outcome of this particular test that would help you make that diagnosis more accurate. It's a good point that these tests are not uh, removing the need for neurologists. The clinical signs and symptoms are still very important and critical to making these diagnoses and having the conversations with people that are experiencing them. Absolutely. More tools in their toolbox. Another question, last question on this topic is, how is this different, this test that we're discussing, which is a test from spinal fluid, you said it was from Amprion, it's called the SYNTAP test, from what people may have heard of, the SYN1 skin biopsy test? Yes. So another good question and can clearly be confusing because one is called SYN1 and the other is SYNTAP. But um, in parallel with this, the seeding assay, SYNTAP discovery and observation, the skin biopsy work was also moving, and there were recent reports last month at a neurology conference that um, this available skin biopsy, which actually takes um, tissue samples, skin samples from three different regions, the neck, the back of the leg, and the ankle. And the that test sends the samples to a central laboratory um, and measures alpha-synuclein, abnormal alpha-synuclein, just using kind of a dye. And you can using this dye, you can see abnormal alpha-synuclein under a microscope. And a pathologist looks at it under the microscope and essentially makes a determination whether it's abnormal or normal. And um, the recent results reported that this skin biopsy shows kind of similar accuracy, diagnostic accuracy, alongside a, a clinical symptoms for um, detecting people with Parkinson's disease. So um, it's a skin biopsy. It's read by a central pathologist. Um, it's not spinal fluid. It's also not seeding. It's important to clarify that this method that the skin biopsy uses is this staining method This where you can highlight alpha-synuclein and you see it under a microscope. So there's two different methods, um, both similar type of accuracy from what we can tell. You know, and, and at the highest level, these are both really useful objective tools to help um, neurologists and researchers um, identify individuals with the alpha-synuclein biology, this abnormal alpha-synuclein biology that occurs with Parkinson's disease. It's exciting. Actually, that also, too, just to see that you're seeing more of these types of approaches now coming coming to like this like level of advance and, and, and use in the community, just because I think, you know, a few years ago, we had nothing really out there like this. And now I think, you know, whether these are the end-all, be-all measurements that are going to be used, in, you know, in future healthcare, I think it's too early to say, but certainly they are good starting points. And, and we'll see more innovation happening as people figure out how to how to turn these into simpler tests, maybe, you know, get them out of spinal fluid and maybe we move to blood, uh, you know, other other types of approaches. Um, and I think that's that's really where the excitement is because uh, we're just kind of starting the journey, I think, at this point, not, and this isn't, uh, this, is, this isn't the end of the journey. 
Yeah, I mean, as you know, Brian, the foundation has been funding this biomarker research since the beginning, since uh, the foundation started in you know, over 20 years ago. And so we've been after these tests for a long time, and it's really exciting to see the progress. And, and I agree that now that there's been a couple of breakthroughs, I think the innovation will really happen quickly, and we're going to see lots of new tests lots of more precise tests, uh, more sensitive tests um, in better tissues like blood um, develop very rapidly. So it's exciting. So it sounds like people are going to have a lot to choose from on the test side. Right now, there are a lot of different treatments already available. Well, as we were discussing, we're urgently working toward many more and ones that will stop disease. But today, people do have some options in how to treat and manage their Parkinson's disease. So, Brian, I wanted to turn to you and talk more about treatments that are already available or potentially close to availability. The first one... um, can deep brain stimulation be turned off or removed? So maybe you could first just give us a quick primer, remind everyone what DBS is, and then answer, could it be turned off or removed? Right, right, right. So uh, so DBS stands for deep brain stimulation. Uh, so it's basically a surgical way of implanting into deep into your brain, uh, hence the deep part, electrodes that are then hooked up to uh, a stimulator, and usually currently the stimulator is uh, implanted just kind of like around your collarbone. Um, and this provides uh, a stimulation to a part of the brain that is impacted by Parkinson's disease. Uh, and, and we don't know exactly how the mechanism of the stimulation necessarily works, but we know it seems to help um, uh, sort of reset that circuit a little bit, uh, helps with some of the, mostly the movement problems of Parkinson's disease. Um, so it's a treatment that's available. It's been, it was approved in the, I think the first version was approved in the late 90s, and there's been iterations from a number of companies uh, that have been approved over the years, uh, and they keep sort of optimizing the approaches as well. But what is uh, great about DBS is it's a great, uh, a certainly option for people as they're sort of progressing with their Parkinson's uh, and they may be taking uh, lots of medication to try to deal with their motor symptoms. They may be having some complications from taking uh, those, those therapies. Uh, and this can sometimes be an option then for some people to, to, to get DBS uh, surgery uh, to put in this electrode, uh, these electrodes, and then that helps uh, manage their symptoms a little bit better. They don't have to, they don't go off all their medications necessarily, but maybe they can reduce some of the medications they're taking and, and the DBS can take up some of the, uh, the, uh, the burden of, of addressing those symptoms. Uh, so can it be turned off or removed? Um, because it's an electrical device, yes, it can be turned off. So you can turn off the stimulator. Uh, that isn't always necessarily a good thing. Obviously, if, if you're getting benefit from DBS and you turn it off, you will no longer get that benefit. Uh, but it can be turned off. Um, can it be removed? Uh, certainly surgically it can. And certainly in some cases it might have to be removed for some, some medical reason. Um, so it is, you know, uh, uh, does have that sort of reversibility, if you will, and that you can you can turn it off or remove it completely if it if, if needed. Uh, it differs from interestingly, you know, some other approaches out there um, around the time, you know, early before sort of DBS was really offered. Uh, there were some surgical approaches where people could go in and actually um, um, remove uh, essentially what they call lesion, a small port part of the brain uh, that could also address some of these uh, the similar types of issues that people deal with uh, and help. With some of the movement problems that, that people were struggling with when they've been on medication for a while. 
Uh, and this sort of lesioning approach has largely been replaced in, uh, with, with deep brain stimulation over the years. More recently, though, there's uh, some other approaches, something called focus ultrasound, which you may have heard of as well, uh, that is, uh, allows you to also go in and sort of lesion a part of the brain, uh, but you can do it without having to actually open up the skull. Uh, so they can use focus uh, ultrasound waves uh, to do this uh, lesioning approach. Uh, and that's also been approved for Parkinson's in the last several years. Uh, and so that can offer as a sort of another surgical option for people who, who, uh, who either aren't good candidates for or don't want to uh, get deep brain stimulation. Um, unlike DBS, though, focus ultrasound, you can't sort of turn off once you sort of, you know, um, lesion that part of the brain. It's, it's lesioned and you can't, you know, remove that lesion or, or sort of turn the lesion off. So that's the, the big difference between DBS and focus ultrasound. Uh, but these are, you know, options, uh, particularly for later stages of the disease when, again, people are maybe um, taking too many medications throughout the day and having some of these complications, and it gives them a, a yet another sort of therapeutic uh, option uh, for, for addressing their symptoms. So those surgical interventions and the medications that you were referencing target the dopamine system. That's where most of the movement symptoms, we believe, arise from the degeneration of the cells that make this brain chemical, this neurotransmitter dopamine. One of the questions we received from MIB agents, uh, can dopaminergic cells be regenerated or replaced, presumably to avoid or restore, um, well, restore movement, avoid those issues? Yeah, no, this is a great question. And one that's been, I think, around for a while. People have, you know, very early on when I think people understood that at least the the main movement challenges in Parkinson's were related to the, the cells in the brain that make dopamine. Uh, there was always this idea of, can you replace those cells? Uh, can you give uh, people back those dopamine cells? In the, in the early days, there were some efforts to use tissue transplantation for that, uh, so they could use uh, um, sort of essentially replace dopamine cells with um, 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 tissue um, that was uh, used to uh, replace those dopamine cells. Um, those were a little messy, uh, those early days. They showed some, some benefits in some people. Um, it, uh, some people did not get benefits from those early uh, attempts to do tissue transplantation. Um, and some people had some side effects as well. So those initial attempts to use tissue, I think, were largely um, sort of uh, abandoned after, after a, a few attempts uh, with some clinical trials. Where people got really excited, though, was when in, uh, again, sort of the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, uh, stem cells were sort of discovered, if you will. I mean, people knew they existed, but, you know, to be able to isolate them and manipulate them, uh, a lot of those early discoveries were happening in the early 2000s. Um, and that offered suddenly an opportunity where maybe we could actually use stem cells to create new dopamine cells in the case of Parkinson's. Uh, Parkinson's certainly wasn't the only disease where people were excited about stem cells, but for us at least, the idea that you could make dopamine cells from stem cells was an, was an early uh, exciting advance. Um, and the idea then of taking those cells and transplanting them into someone with Parkinson's became a really uh, important uh, idea for, for the field. So there was a lot of work um, on that idea. Uh, a lot of the initial work had to do with how do you actually coax these cells to become sort of dopamine cells that actually could function like dopamine cells in the brain. And so there was a lot of work, actually, the Michael J. Fox Foundation put a lot of uh, money and effort in those early days uh, to understand, uh, kind of develop the recipes for how you can turn stem cells into dopamine cells. Um, and some of them, the initial laboratory work that was needed to understand, can you then put them into the into a you know, brain of a laboratory model and actually see if it, uh, if it can actually uh, function like it should. 
Um, but now we're seeing actually these move into clinical testing. And so there's actually a number of companies and groups now that are actually doing uh, transplants with stem cell derived dopamine cells in Parkinson's disease. Uh, and that's really exciting to see because we're now really, I think, have an opportunity to test whether this cell replacement idea uh, might really actually have benefits for Parkinson's disease. Um, now, if you ask experts today, um, many will say that the benefits you might see with this type of approach might be similar to what you might see with deep brain stimulation and some other approaches like that. So it's quite possible that you know um, replacing simply replacing the dopamine cells is isn't going to be a cure for the disease. Uh, you're not sort of completely you know growing back your brain, um, but they could potentially offer some benefits that could be a, a yet another sort of surgical option for for people with with Parkinson's disease, especially perhaps maybe at later stages of the disease. Um, so it's exciting to see some of those advances. Um, you know, I like to thinking about the first question and this question. I think they both sort of hit on an interesting theme, which is, you know, what do you do, especially at the later stages of Parkinson's disease, when you know the brain you've lost some cells, you sort of lost some function, and how do you kind of give that back? And I think you know when you see these options like DBS potentially with the cell replacement approaches, you're seeing sort of the advances I think that we're trying to make, which is you know literally about how do you kind of give yourselves uh, give someone with Parkinson's back that function that they need, especially at those later stages. And and I you know I'm excited to see these new approaches tried. I think there's even in the you know probably a little bit further future, you know could you actually um, sort of convince the brain to repair itself? Uh, there actually is some you know reasonable work that's happening out there with the idea of can you actually replace lost cells by sort of coaxing the brain to replace those cells directly versus you needing to transplant them and so a lot of that work is still in very early stage and in the laboratory but uh, it's exciting to see that we might have some even further advances in this idea of kind of re restoring and repairing the brain uh, in people with parkinson's disease Fascinating. Well, I have three young kids and can't coax them to do anything. So <laughs> perhaps, perhaps there's some lesson in there for me about yeah, uh, coaxing your brain. Amazing. Um, I also, I just want to give a plug for these more care relevant topics like deep brain stimulation. Stem cells is a question we get asked a lot about. Uh, we have an Ask the MD series with very uh, educational videos and guides and a lot of helpful content that can help evaluate different options or consider what's out there and give you scripts or questions to ask and discuss with your loved ones and your physicians. So please check that out if you haven't already. Um, that series touches a lot on this topic from our next question which is why does exercise improve balance? I think we hear a lot about how exercise is a great treatment, exercise great medicine, and it can slow symptoms and you know, make you feel better for lots of different reasons. But we do hear it especially referenced with balance. And so I think this is an interesting question about what exactly is happening either with the body or the brain that improves balance when you exercise. Mm -hmm. That's This is a good one. I mean, I'm, so I'll caveat and say I'm not a expert in the sort of physiology of balanced circuits in the brain. But, um, I, you know, I think exercise, as you said, provides a lot of different types of benefits from just, you know, the strengthening it gives us, the, the moods, you know, it sort of improves your mood, uh, you know, does a lot of things, uh, maybe helps you even sleep better if you're exercising aggressively and getting tired. Um, so there's a lot of probably ways that it could ultimately help someone with, with Parkinson's disease. You know, I think for balance, it's such a complicated system, you know, it involves, you know, obviously your 
muscles and the coordination of your muscles to be able to maintain balance along with, you know, the parts of your within your ear that, you know, are about sort of, you know, detecting balance and where your head is in, you know, in space and things like that. I think, you know, things like this can help people compensate. And I think that's probably a big, a big part of this, which is, you know, by exercising, uh, by sort of challenging your body and your brain to uh, uh, maintain certain kinds of movement, um, you know, being able to stand better, uh, more solidly on the ground, uh, you know, when you're doing certain kinds of exercises. I think these just ultimately can help train your brain because your brain's a pretty plastic, you know, um, sort of malleable thing. It's, it's always adjusting itself based on new experiences. And so I think if you, you know, in the context of exercise, by simply doing that consistently, I think you can improve things like balance and, and your ability to walk and things like that just by, again, sort of retraining your brain on, on how to compensate for maybe the things that you've lost in Parkinson's disease. It's not always easy, and certainly it's, it's something you have to keep up and consistently do, but uh, I do think there's some, some good, you know, good benefits that can come from, the, from these types of approaches. Yeah, I was going to say something similar. I mean, it's about practice and you hear about Tai Chi or boxing being really helpful for things like balance and Parkinson's disease. And it's really just practicing and training, as Brian said, training that neuromuscular connection and strengthening the connections to really be able to um, improve your balance. And so the more you do it to the extent you can, I think it will improve things like balance because you're strengthening those connections, you're practicing doing the exercise and it will apply to real life when, you know, balance and falling might be a challenge. So, yeah. And we, you know, we get a lot of questions about exercise, you know, a lot of different venues and, you know, I think people are looking for that one prescription, you know, tell me what I need to do to do the best exercise and, you know, how many minutes a day do I need to do it? And I think, you know, the real answer to that is, you know, do the exercise types of exercises that you'll keep doing over time. Uh, and that you actually enjoy uh, and and that you can do safely uh, uh, without the fear of falling or any, anything else like that. So I just see it's important just to make sure you're you're kind of maintaining movement and and keeping uh, keeping yourself um, you know getting out of the chair and, and and doing physical exercise, I think is just a general good rule of thumb for all of us, not even even just those with Parkinson's. Our last category is biology and patient experience. You know, everything that we've talked about, we've learned from studying the human experience, the biological experience of Parkinson's disease. So Mark, I'm going to toss this first question in this category to you, which is, we hear a lot about the microbiome in our gut. How would learnings about the Parkinson's microbiome actually impact treatments or care? This is a really hot area of science in general. Um, not just neurology, but especially neurology. And it's a new area because there's so much we don't know about the microbiome. But what we do know as it relates to Parkinson's disease, it's fairly well established that um, there are different um, bugs and the different makeup of uh, bugs in the gut of someone with Parkinson's disease compared to someone without. Now, why is that? There could be a number of reasons. There are certainly changes to the gastrointestinal function. There's delayed gastric emptying in Parkinson's disease. Some people have constipation, so this could contribute to changes in microbiome. Obviously, what you eat and the environment really influences it. Um, so there, we know there's a role for gut health 
and a connection between the gut and the brain. And um, we, we know there are slight differences between people with Parkinson's and their microbiome and people without. But there's a lot that we really need to understand and what a quote unquote normal microbiome is. I think that's still um, up for some debate. Um, however, there are some therapeutic avenues that are being pursued for Parkinson's and other other disorders that try to, you know, sort of bring back a balance of the microbiome in, in Parkinson's disease. And these are, you know, in early, very early testing, maybe early safety studies. But the idea is, could you kind of rebalance the gut microbiome and would that Re result in better brain health and ultimately better improve Parkinson's symptoms. And, you know, there's, we have a lot of work to test that qu question and that hypothesis, but there is a lot of ongoing um, activity in this space. No softballs today. Sorry, our community <laughs> is just is too good. Brian, let's see if, uh, if this one stumps you. Is it true that too few hours of sleep during a lifetime can increase the probability of getting Parkinson's? Yeah, no, this is a great question and actually timely because there's been a lot of discussion, I think, in the last few years about the role of sleep and sleep impairment as a risk factor for brain health diseases. And certainly we live in a time when uh, all of us probably sit up at night in bed with our phones in our hand and, you know, bright light screens shining into our eyes and wonder why we then we wake up feeling groggy the next day. So I think this idea of sleep uh, and its role in sort of, you know, healthy aging, I think is an important one. So is it true that too few hours um, of sleep can be a risk factor for Parkinson's? Uh, I will admit, I don't know the data uh, around that very well, but I do know there have been suggestive um, uh, reports uh, in uh, Alzheimer's disease that would suggest that reduce uh, hours of sleep might be associated with higher risks for diseases like Alzheimer's. So um, why that's the case, though, I, I don't think people really fully know. So there's a lot about sleep just as a basic physiological process that we don't understand. Like, what, why do we sleep and why do we need sleep and why, you know, can you not stay awake if you try to stay awake more than, you know, 24, 36 hours? Uh, you basically start falling asleep whether you want to or not. And so what, what's the drive being forced that is uh, making that happen? Um, and so there's some ideas out there. And one idea is actually that sleep is really important for kind of allowing your brain to clear out all the garbage, uh, to get rid of the toxins in the brain and sort of clear out all the, the sort of the detritus of essentially, you know, a functioning brain and uh, what it produces over the course of, you know, uh, a day. Uh, and that, you know, is a powerful idea when you think about brain health and that maybe uh, if you don't get enough of that sort of good downtime where your your body can kind of clear out that that junk, um, that over time that could you know, be damaging to your brain and ultimately lead to, you know, impairments over time that could lead to accumulation of toxins that could ultimately, you know, uh, harm parts of your brain and lead to age-related neurodegenerative disorders. No one's really directly shown that yet in Parkinson's, so we can't say yes, indeed, that that is the mm -hmm. cause of Parkinson's disease. But uh, it certainly could be, you know, one one hypothesis worth worth digging into more. We do know sleep is an certainly an outcome and maybe an early symptom of Parkinson's disease. Uh, you, we may have heard us talk before about 
REM behavior sleep disorder, which is a, a disorder of, uh, of a sort of a sleeping disorder that happens in early on in people with Parkinson's, uh, where they sort of lose their ability to keep their muscles still while they're dreaming. Now that isn't, that's probably less about sleep and more about muscle control. So whether that is the same thing as a sleep impairment, I guess is a, is a, a different question. But, um, but I do think there uh, clearly is an impact uh, in Parkinson's on our ability to sleep. Uh, and it's quite possible that there could be, you know, impairments over time, if you're not getting enough sleep, that could be contributing to Parkinson's uh, in the process over time. So anyway, a lot, lot of research that probably still needs to happen. I was actually at a conference last fall uh, that sort of brought together a bunch of different groups, including from other, uh, other brain disorders. Uh, and we spent a lot of time talking about, you know, the potential role of sleep as a contributing factor to these diseases, as well as a, you know, symptom and an outcome of these diseases. And how do you even think about treating that as a, as a, as a problem? Uh, we just, you know, learned, I think, how complex this sleep process is and even that there are different types of sleep. The normal sleep we think of every night is different from the sleep you might um, sort of be dealing with. The tiredness and the fatigue you deal with during when you're sick or you have a disease uh, could be a very different process. So I think it's, again, it's a very complicated biology around, around sleep. But that being said, you know, I think good quality sleep is, is generally good for all of us and probably something that, uh, that we need to be taking closer look at, uh, looks at, including thinking about light hygiene and how do you deal with light as a risk factor for disease when we're all sort of exposed to devices now uh, that can never be turned off fully and are always sort of in our face and how do we deal with that uh, as, a, as a population. Maggie, some have argued that sleep should be added to the list of vital signs, including body temperature, heart rate, blood pressure, oxygen rate, et cetera. And, you know, it's clear that th this, this role of sleep clearing out the toxins is very intriguing. And you could certainly argue that sleep should be an essential vital sign that's measured, that is reflective of general health not just brain health. So it's really interesting. Some of these might be helpful in establishing those associations because a lot of these wearables and such are tracking sleep. So now yep. that we have these big data sets and if people go on to develop Parkinson's or other diseases and you can look back and I'm sure many other contributing factors, but like you said, if sleep or lack of it is one of them. So with all this data too, we are able to look at early signs of Parkinson's. You know, right now, as we were discussing before, diagnostics are done by a physician. There are tests that are emerging, but how do you know even how early you can give those tests to measure biology? Uh, a user, I like this username, at perfectlyhappy2306 has asked us, is there a specific list of early signs and are they different between men and women? Which is a very interesting coda there. Mark. Um, well, there are early signs and it's not consistent across everyone that uh, it eventually develops Parkinson's disease, but things like uh, REM sleep behavior disorder that um, is this disorder where people act out their dreams, that's certainly an early sign. Um, olfactory deficits, so smell loss, that people lose their sense of smell, that often occurs prior to developing some of the motor symptoms. Although there are many things like COVID that can cause um, smell loss. So it's not always, it's not specific to Parkinson's disease. Um, interestingly, there are some reports that um, there can be some depression 
uh, linked to um, Parkinson's disease before some of the motor symptoms, so um, mood changes. And then um, a neurologist once told me the most common early sign is shoulder pain, <laughs> which I think is associated with the rigidity and um, stiffness that occurs. Um, but many people just think it's getting old or arthritis, but that's, I think, an early sign as well. Yeah. Yeah, we've heard that a lot. People thinking it's like a tennis injury or something and going to see an orthopedist and then they have mm -hmm. a very long journey to Parkinson's disease. Sorry, Brian, you yeah. were gonna say. No, I was gonna, yeah, say, I think one of the things that these early signs tells us too is how, how early on we tend to not recognize these as Parkinson's early symptoms that get recognized as other things. So like you said, you have pain in the shoulder and you go to the doctor and you think you just need physical therapy uh, or you have, um, you're not sleeping so well. So you go to a sleep clinic or you, you know, go to the, you're not, you know, having uh, your smell function doesn't seem so well. So you just assume that, you know, something you must've had a, I don't know, someone hit you in the nose or something like that. So these things don't get recognized as early signs of age-related neurodegenerative disorders like Parkinson's. Uh, and so one, you know, harkening back to our earlier discussion about the new biomarker uh, discovery and the, the benefits of something like that is that you could imagine a day where someone comes in with, you know, some of these types of early signs instead of getting sort of told the usual oh, don't worry about it, it must just be an injury, uh, you actually get maybe one of these tests and they can sort of rule out whether there's something more serious going on that might be predictive of you, you know, being at the early stages of something like Parkinson's disease. And so I think, you know, these early signs become really important for helping to kind of combine with those, uh, those new biomarker um, measurements that we talked about uh, as a way to really kind of get a, hopefully an earlier, faster, uh, hint of what might be happening in your body. And that's the aim of our PPMI study, which is where a lot of the data from the um, new biomarker test came from and which is recruiting people with some of those clinical factors that we feel confident about, like RBD, REM sleep behavior disorder, or smell loss to help us understand what is the profile or profiles more likely of early Parkinson's and who should, as you were saying, sort of have that that test and learn more about their biology. So you can learn more about that study on our website as well, michaeljfox.org slash PPMI. So that wraps up our audience submitted questions, but uh, our producer, Namisha, and I thought it might be fun to put you two on the spot for a little lightning round. Uh-oh. Just to, you know, get to know you a little bit better. What are you doing when you're not, you know, trying to end Parkinson's disease? So and I, I had said earlier that some of them were straightforward and um, that was not the case. So this time I'm going to require that your answers are straightforward. This is lightning, not uh, you know long thunderstorm um, round. So, okay, Mark, what is your favorite Michael J. Fox movie? Yeah, you know, most people say Back to the Future, but I had a VHS uh, recording of Teen Wolf growing up and that I watched a lot and um, used to know every line to it. So I, I would have to go with Teen Wolf. That was that was uh, a great movie, kind of a cult classic. That's a good one. That's a good one. I'm still a Back to the Future fan, though, but I, I agree with you. Teen Wolf was a good one as well. Yeah. And if you haven't seen Michael's new movie still, it's a, a great film overall, but it's also a really fun compilation of a lot of uh, sort of highlights from across his career. So check that out. Brian, what is the best book you have read? Hmm. 
Um, I, I read one not so long ago um, that I really liked. It wasn't a particularly new book, but uh, one I'd been meaning to read called The Gene, an Intimate History. Uh, it's by uh, Siddhartha uh, Mukherjee. Uh, and it was what I liked about it was it was sort of a history of the essentially the discovery of genetics all the way from the you know Gregor Mark's Mandela. holding it up you can't see if oh, you're listening there you go. but Mark, yeah, his yeah. home office <laughs> it's a great story because it just talks about the history of science basically and in this case centered on genetics but just talks about how these little moments of discovery become so powerful and amplifying about our understanding of the world around us and you know we're seeing this obviously you know, I think in the Parkinson's field now with some of these newer discoveries coming out and how that can, you know, every new discovery opens the door for the, you know, letting you enter the next room, which is where the next discovery comes from. And anyway, so it was a really well, uh, well-written book and a good, great history on genetics if you're interested in it, but uh, it was probably one of the, the better books I've read in the last couple I of years. I agree. It was a good one. It's not just science, but also history of science, which is yeah. really fun. I think I saw he just had a new one called Cell. Right. Oh, yeah, it's all uh, about how the cell works. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. The the sequel, Gene, yeah. the sequel, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yes, check those out. So, you two have both worked here at Fox for a long time. Mark, how many MJFF office spaces have you worked in? And you can count that home office where you just picked up that Gene book as one if you'd like. Uh, I think three. Oh, and then, sorry, four if you include my home office, which I've been working out of a lot since COVID. So, four. Brian, how about you? Four as well? Uh, well, I guess it would be five if it's so uh, the original. Well, not the original, but f- close to the original space. Uh, and then, yeah, so one, two, three. Yeah, I would say so four actual offices and then partly now my, my home office as well. Okay. Brian, what is a technology or product that has gone you know, the way of the wind and is not available anymore that you really miss? You know what I kind of miss? I, I mean, you know, and I have to say, this was a hard. This is a hard question because I can, you know, there's a lot of advances, and you know, all the advances certainly make your life easier. But I kind of miss the simplicity of old style TV watching when you had to know what time your show was on, and you had to go watch it that evening. Uh, none of this on-demand streaming, uh, a way of, you know, watching TV today, just because it, it one, it probably kept us from watching too much TV, maybe. <laughs> we actually had to do other things when something wasn't on that we wanted to watch. Uh, but it also, I don't know, there was a shared sort of cultural moment that everybody had, uh, which sometimes they still capture, I think, in streaming when they when they release the, the shows, uh, you know, one at a time. I think they called that appointment television, where you had exactly. to, like, exactly. schedule, I will be watching yeah. The Sopranos finale or whatever exactly. it was. But there was, know, something, I don't know, there was something about that again. I yeah. obviously still love being able to stream whatever I want, you know, late at night, but there's still something I miss about that old school TV watching. Mark, how about you? VHS? So you can't watch yeah, that Teen Wolf yeah, tape anymore? Loved watching uh, VHS recordings. <laughs> um, I, I actually was going to say um, listening to the radio to hear your school announced during for snow days <laughs> and <laughs> the joy of sitting in bed listening to the radio. And if you missed your school, you'd have to wait another 20 minutes or half hour till they announce them again. But there was something so exciting about hearing your school call during snow days. And that just doesn't happen anymore with email and text threads. Yeah, yeah I grew it's up true. in Texas. So uh, the idea of snow doesn't days resonate. Was not, was, wasn't something that resonated with me. Did Although you have like sandstorms like, or something? Ice storms occasionally. Okay. Tornadoes, but, yeah. But yeah, very rarely uh, would we ever have school canceled because of, of snow for sure. 
Amazing. Well, snow or ice or sandstorms are not canceling our pursuit of a Parkinson's cure. So thank you for taking the time to answer some of our audience questions and my fun get to know you ones at the end and for keeping it short. And thank you all for listening to another episode of our Parkinson Science POV podcast. You can learn more about our PPMI study, our educational content, and all the other things that we covered during this chat at our website, michaeljfox.org. And if you like our podcast, please share it with friends and family. Until next time, thanks for listening. Did you enjoy this podcast? Share it with a friend or leave a review on iTunes. It helps listeners like you find and support our mission. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation at michaeljfox.org. Thanks for listening. This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org.